the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Lee. These early days of November give us ample opportunity to celebrate holy women and men. November 1st is All Saints Day, November 2nd is All Souls Day, and November 5th is the Feast of All Saints and Blessed of the Society of Jesus. But how many Jesuit saints do you really know? If you went to a Jesuit school, you can probably name a few. Maybe you lived in Gonzaga Hall or went to class in a building named Campion. But for many of us, our familiarity with Jesuit saints begins and ends with a guy named Ignatius. That stops today with our guest, Jesuit historian Father Tim O'Brien, the newly named Director of Mission Initiatives at the College of the Holy Cross. Tim introduces us to a noble-turned-Jesuit-turned-diplomat, a carpenter that saved priests and orchestrated jailbreaks, and martyrs that led to a global showdown over what it means to go on mission. We tackle geopolitics and clashes of religious identities that shaped the world stage. And all these saints, Francis Borgia, Nick Owen, and the martyrs of Nagasaki, lived and worked and died less than a hundred years after the Society of Jesus was founded. Not bad for a new religious order. If you like what you hear, why not subscribe or give us a kind rating? Why not tell your friends? And if you're really looking for more, why not join our weekly mailing list at jesuits.org weekly. Now, here's Father Tim. Father Tim O'Brien, welcome to AMDG. Thanks, happy to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. Um, so you are currently the Director of Mission Initiatives at uh, Holy Cross, but we're here today uh, to really delve into your, your knowledge as a historian, because you're a historian by trade, right? Yeah, so I'm trained as a historian of religious culture of the 16th and 17th centuries. Perfect, because uh, in preparation for uh, or in celebration of uh, this month of, of All Saints and, and uh, the upcoming feast of, of, uh, of All Saints and Blesseds of the Society of Jesus on November 5th, uh, we we're hoping that you would reflect with us on some uh, lesser known saints of the society. I think uh, a lot of folks know your uh, Ignatius of Loyola's, your Francis Xavier's, um, but obviously there's a couple hundred years of really awesome Jesuits doing really awesome work. Um, and we, we want to share that with our listeners today. So to kick it off, I, just why, why, is it, why is it worth knowing more about some of these saints? Why, why, why should we care about people that aren't just named Ignatius? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that, you know, the, the, in the time period that we're going to talk about mostly today, 16th and 17th centuries, there was a conviction that the church always had to have saints, that one of the proofs of kind of God's continuing care for his people was that there were always, always extraordinary uh, followers of Christ. And I think that that's still true. You know, I think what we'll see in these people is that there's a real diversity of ways to be holy. Uh, and the diversity of experiences. Ignatius thought that he needed to do, as you know, like exactly what the saints before him had done and had to come to learn how to be holy in his own way. And I think that's a challenge for, for people in every generation, including in our own day. So it's good to know about the saints, good to know what they did, and uh, especially ones we don't know so much about, but also to think about what it would look like for us also to be to be holy in our own time, in our own place. So the the, the individuals that we're going to talk about today, um, interestingly, 
uh, all existed and did their work uh, within the first 80 years of the founding of the Society of Jesus. Uh, so as you said, you know, roughly, uh, you know, the, the late 1500s or so, right? Um, and so I think it just shows how quickly the society got, got off and running um, with, with real far-reaching global, global impacts. So the first person we want to talk about uh, is, is, is Francis Borgia. So tell us, who is he? Uh, well, tell us first, what was going on um, at the time of, of this particular saint? Yeah. So your, your mention about uh, things getting started for the society is a perfect way to start thinking about Francis Borgia or Francisco de Borja, as he would be called. So he is a Borgia. <laughs> if you've ever seen the, the television series, he was the, I think, great grandson of Pope Alexander VI, which uh, would not have been a particularly uh, happy distinction at the time. But Francis was a, uh, a very powerful, uh, very influential nobleman in um, in Spain. So he's uh, the Duke of Gandia, which uh, is in uh, south of Spain, kind of southeast of Spain. Um, and he was uh, a very close advisor of, of the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, and who was also at the time King of Spain. We'll talk more about that if we're interested in it. Um, but he was basically one of the one of the most powerful nobles in all of Spain uh, until he had a conversion experience and um, and became a Jesuit, uh, which is an interesting story. So we can come back to that. But he's he's situated in a period in time when the Jesuit order has Ignatius and his companions, many of them were from what we now think of as Spain. They leave to go to school in Paris. And then a, years later, after the society is founded, a group of Jesuits come back. They're not the first Jesuits. They're more like the second Jesuits. And this is the time period that Francis is situated in when the society is growing really quickly in Spain, founding a lot of schools and works. Um, but they didn't really know who Ignatius was. You know, they kind of knew that he existed. Uh, things are just getting started. Things were a lot less nailed down or consistent, I think, than we think of now. Uh, and that's kind of the moment in time that he's that he's situated. I, I'm struck by the, uh, you know, this 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 conversion from a life of of, of royalty or, or you know certainly the courtliness of of the time to to a Jesuit and certainly that's uh, you know pivotal to Ignatius's own story as well. Mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit more about about Francis himself, uh, particularly you, you've alluded to. Um, you know, I mean, we think about Ignatius, you know, being kind of in the courts, but but Francis was was much more plugged in uh, than Ignatius in a much more significant way. Um, so so what 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 did that mean to him? And then what impact did it have? What was he able to leverage, kind of going forward as a Jesuit? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. The um, so if Ignatius was kind of lower nobility, Francis Borgia would be as high as you could get without being a royal, essentially. Um, so um, he. Uh, he was born into a life of tremendous privilege. He kind of lived the usual life that you would expect of someone that high. He's a grandee of Spain. So he's one of kind of the four or five very close uh, nobles into the king, was the viceroy of Catalonia, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so he kind of lives his high noble life. He's a devout man, like Ignatius. He was a Christian his whole life. So for his conversion was not to Catholicism or to Christianity, but a deeper engagement with, with the reality of God in his life. Um, and he's married. He has children um, uh, and uh, is married very happily. Um, he, he has a powerful experience uh, after the So when Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, came to Spain, his wife dies, the Empress Isabella. And the story goes that Francis travels a long way to kind of view her remains, kind of like wake 
service that we think of even even today, except it was a hot summertime in Spain before embalming. Uh, and Francis rolls into the um, into the into the room and uh, is is made to view the body, which was the thing that you did. And um, the decay and smell um, were such that he he has this profound desire never again to serve anyone who can die. It's something like uh, I will never again serve an earthly lord um, or lady. Uh, and it's the beginning of his kind of deeper engagement with his faith. It'll take years to to stand up for him being a Jesuit, but he um, that's kind of where it starts. He goes on. Uh, obviously, he doesn't. He becomes a Jesuit, but he doesn't just stop at you know your entry level Jesuit, right? He goes on to right. to bigger and better things. Well, actually, before his that's correct, but before he becomes a Jesuit, so his 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 own wife dies in fifteen forty five. Um, and uh, it's after that point that he officially begins discerning about entering the society and eventually leaves his crown, his ducal crown, and then becomes um, becomes a uh, becomes a member of the society. But he's connected with Ignatius before that, and he's in very involved in uh, founding a school. He actually is in the running for the first Jesuit school. We always say it was in Messina in 1548. Uh, the school in Gandia starts in 1547. Uh, he wanted a university and a, and a lower school. Um, it never really got going in his lifetime. And once he entered the society, it basically fell apart. Um, but the other thing that he's very well known for, uh, in 1548 and same year was that he, um, shortly after he kind of entered the society a little bit, unofficially. He kind of was a Jesuit, but wasn't presenting himself as such in public. He uh, secures approval from the Pope for the spiritual exercises. And he actually is responsible for the first printing of the of the exercises that happens in Rome, also in 1548. So he's a hugely influential person for the later um, kind of trajectory of Ignatian spirituality and the ability of the exercises to be known as a text rather than as something that's just kind of transmitted one-to-one. But as you as you say, he he enters the society. Ignatius is still alive uh, when he when he enters, and the society is growing very quickly in Spain. Uh, this would be somewhat like if I don't know, uh, choose your famous American politician, like the president of the United States, or maybe like the vice president, um, decided to enter the society. It has an enormous impact uh, on recruitment. Uh, and Ignatius realizes his potential to kind of solidify the society's position in Spain, it kind of makes him like the super Jesuit of all of Spain. He kind of is a roving boss of all of the four provinces in Spain um, uh, before later being called to Rome. And he's eventually, as you as you no doubt know, elected as the superior general of the society later in the 16th century. So he has this kind of meteoric rise once he becomes a Jesuit. Um, yeah. What do you think, uh, I know it's hard to kind of prove a counterfactual, but what do you think uh, would have happened? Would the Jesuits have, have risen as quickly without, uh, you know, su such a kind of an all-star heavy hitter entering the society, you know, so soon after its, after its founding? Well, the historian in me is allergic to counterfactuals, but the, <laughs> I, the I don't know, the, uh, the human in me is, is intrigued by the question. I think that, you know, that the, the growth of the society and, and especially it, it this, the Jesuits had like real difficulty getting established there. I mean, even though we think of Ignatius and, and his first companions as kind of disproportionately Spanish, um, the, the Spanish crown didn't see it that way. They were suspicious because they had been educated in France and they were suspicious because they were headquartered in Rome. And so having someone like Francis Borgia, who's 
Spanishness, Espanolidad, was not at all in question, was tremendously influential. Uh, without him, I'm sure it would have taken much more time for the society to get well established and also for them to have uh, had the success that they had in founding schools and finding other benefactors. You know, the other thing that he's, that he's kind of known for, two things, one is his contact with kind of holy women, one of whom was Teresa of Avila, who I think a lot about and write about. And the other is um, Juana, uh, the, the Infanta Juana, who, who is the granddaughter of Charles V and the sister of the next king of Spain, who became actually the only kind of recorded official female Jesuit who was known as Mateo Sanchez. So he kind of, Francis becomes the link to the royal family uh, down to <laughs> recruiting the king's own uh, sister to become, to become a Jesuit. Um, so she becomes known in the society as Mateo Sanchez. She's the, the famous Mateo Sanchez. I know, especially if we're talking about um, unknown unknown Jesuits. I think that's a good a good one to to keep in yeah. mind, right? Yeah. Um, I you know I just uh, I'm sure there's an importance to to again the Spanish crown uh, recognizing and, and affirming the Jesuits, right? Um, because they're such you know heavy hitters in the Catholic world. Um, so, so I'm assuming, right? That that was that was key. You know, obviously the Jesuits are in Rome, as you said. They had a presence in in Paris, um, but but there's something key about the uh, the King and Queen of, of Spain, right? Being kind of in the in the court of of the Jesuits. There is, yeah. I, mean, I think we also have to keep in mind. So even though the Spanish monarchs are known as uh, their most Catholic Majesties, Isabella and Ferdinand, and down down to their grandchildren and great grandchildren. Um, part of the problem is that the Pope is also a territorial power at this time. So as much as Catholic as the Spaniards were, they sometimes were not particularly big fans of the Pope. And so what Francis winds up doing is becoming a particularly important ally between the Spanish crown and the Holy See or the Vatican, um, and then later between the society and Spain. So he is, even after becoming a Jesuit, he's involved uh, up until the time of his death in pretty high diplomatic roles officially and unofficially in the in um, early modern Europe. So Francis is typically called like the set like the second founder, right? Uh, of the society. Is that a uh, something that people or, or why do people say that? What's what's behind that? Yeah. So the, the, in the 20th century and 21st century, we would more often say that Pedro Arupe was the second founder. That's what I thought. We can get into all, all kinds of debates about this. And, and John O'Malley and others say, think that there are multiple foundings somewhere between four and five. So uh, which part of the foundation he he's connected to is an open question, but it's no question that he is part of a movement later after Ignatius of kind of solidifying the foundation that happened with Ignatius. So uh, you kind of have, an, it's kind of the law of all organizations. You have this charismatic person who is the first founder, and then it's a question of how you institutionalize the spirit or the charism in theological language afterwards. And Francis is really important for this. He's, he pushes uh, much harder on uh, global uh, missions for the society. He's, you know, and this again is part of his link to Spain. So people going to Peru, uh, Mexico, I think also happens during his time. So he's, he's at once focused on solidifying the internal life of the society, which is going to take even after him another couple decades to kind of come into the form that we would kind of recognize. Uh, and then also expanding the works that the society did around the globe. I imagine too. You you alluded to this how um, you know the Jesuit order you know society grew. Not everyone knew Ignatius, but but he did. Francis did. So I imagine there was um, a real importance to him knowing the founder him 
himself, uh, and then going on to be, uh, you know, the, the the superior of the of the society into the you know years on. Yes, there definitely is. I mean, he he knew Ignatius, as you say, and that, that is important. Um, but he also, we have to remember, is trying to get Ignatius canonized. So he dies in 1556. Uh, he won't be canonized until 1622. Um, and so Francis Borgia is actually part of a much broader movement in the society to focus on the person of Ignatius, to put out a version of his story that is edifying, <laughs> that makes mm. him uh, very clearly a saint. Uh, and actually, Francis, it's interesting, the book that we now think of as a Ignatius's autobiography, Francis Borgia actually orders all the copies of that collected and sent to Rome because it's not sufficiently uh, uplifting and not sufficiently holy. So he he kind of gets involved in a little bit of the campaign for Ignatius becoming Saint Ignatius. Um, but his knowledge of him certainly bore on that. He, he was a firsthand witness to the ways in which he was holy and really relied on him for help during his own conversion and his decision to enter the society. That's interesting. The um... Because I, I think it was actually John O'Malley, the, the paper that you worked on with him a while back, right, where you're saying the autobiography wasn't really reintroduced to the world until the you know early 1900s, but it was a different biography of something that someone else wrote that was kind of used, that was kind of seen as the the source of, of Ignatius's life. Yeah. It's Pedro Ribadonera. So hmm. Ribadonera is another 16th century Jesuit. We won't go too far into him. Um, but he is the professional writer of Jesuit lives. Uh, and if you needed someone to be to to look like a saint, act like a saint, and have the stories of a saint, Pedro was your guy. Uh, in fact, after Borgia dies and the movement begins to canonize him, it's Pedro de Ribadonera that writes his his hagiography. It's a good guy to have around. So That's let's. Right. Let's turn our attention from a, a place where where uh, kind of the geopolitics are, are friendly to Catholicism and and to the growing Jesuit order to a place where uh, they were not, um, and and talk a little bit about um, what was going on in England in this time, um, and uh, and what the Jesuits were as, as well as all Catholics were were facing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, obviously uh, not that far away geographically, but a quite different political reality. Um, During the lifetime of Ignatius, of course, Martin Luther um, has his moment in Germany. Um, And the the Reformation also uh, spreads, as you know, were reform movements. They start as Catholic reform and will later become Protestant reform in England. We're most familiar with Henry VIII, of course, and his wives, wives, uh, the question of uh, his divorce. Henry was kind of a, we would say now, like a little more um, incremental reformer. Um, stepping away from from um, from the papacy, but also kind of trying to keep an English Catholicism. His successors, his two immediate, or I'm sorry, his immediate successor is a is a Edward the Sixth, a boy king uh, who dies very young, uh, and so his advisors were able to push the reform Protestant reform agenda a little bit further um, than than it could go even under under Henry the Eighth. So this is a complicated time for the society, and it's a complicated time for English Catholicism, because what we have is Henry VIII, Edward VI, kind of moving in a Protestant direction. Then you have Mary Tudor, uh, who comes along and is um, Bloody Mary or Queen Mary, uh, the Catholic, uh, depending on your side of this conflict. Um, And then after she dies, uh, she tries to, she was unable to produce an heir. Um, and Elizabeth, Queen Elizabeth I, uh, comes in, good Queen Bess. Again, all these terms are loaded, uh, and she is followed up by James I or VI, depending on your where you're counting. 
and the Protestant move is really kind of solidified with Elizabeth and James. So uh, I mentioned all that quickly just to say that's the moment that the Jesuits are situated in where uh, Catholicism goes out of favor, it comes back in favor, and it goes way out of favor again uh, later. And so the, the Catholic martyrs, the Jesuit martyrs of, of England, uh, are really situated more towards Elizabeth and uh, James's uh, time, uh, where Catholicism was clandestine, it, it worship had to happen kind of underground. Um, there were, um, it was still at this time possible to maintain Catholic without taking the oath, called recusant Catholics, uh, who were served in many cases by uh, secret priests, uh, in many cases Jesuits. So some of the better known ones would be Edmund Campion, uh, there's, a, there's a long list of them. There are also fewer, lesser known uh, Jesuit saints from that time and place. I know Edmund Campion because uh, I think that was a, a name of a hall at Fairfield University. I guess Campion gets gets uh, gets halls named after him. So we won't talk about him because people know about about him or at least have lived in a building to his name. But one the one thing that I, I did want to um, hear your thoughts on was, uh, was Nick Owen, who I believe was a, was a Jesuit brother um, and also uh, an architect who kind of fits into the narrative you've you've said about these kind of hidden priests and and you know priests performing mass in secret. So so tell us a little bit about. Um, about about Nick Owen, um, aside from the fact that he's often depicted wearing um, a, a neat hat. Yes, so Nicholas Owen, very neat hat, lots of <laughs> lots of neat hats in this time. He himself is not a priest, so he is a Jesuit brother, uh, one in a long line of uh, holy men who were who were not priests but who felt themselves called to be a Jesuit. Uh, and as you say, he's kind of he's the the professional terms are a little bit loose. So we would say an architect, also perhaps a um, a mason or a um, a carpenter. Uh, and so Nick Owen is uh, the brother of a printer who was very involved with the society printing pamphlets, pro-Catholic pamphlets during the reigns of the Protestant kings and queens of, um, of England. And he gets involved with the society by uh, helping to create clandestine places for priests to hide, um, called often priest holes. And what they would be is various sizes. Um, you would put uh, in, in the event that uh, a priest were in a house saying mass, because of course Catholic chapels had been uh, made illegal and turned into ch chapels of the state. So Catholic worship had to happen in home churches, since true since the uh, the early times of, of the church. Um, and he will create places for them to hide if priest hunters, uh, people who were agents of the state and looking for uh, priests came along. So often below staircases, uh, think Harry Potter, you know, kind of uh, living beneath the stairwell, uh, a place where a priest could jump into um, and hopefully wait out um, those around who would uh, who were looking to arrest them. I think it's uh, actually in the original text of the Sorcerer's Stone, right? That the cupboard where Harry Potter lived was actually created by Nick Owen. Is that is that true? Is that your understanding as well? I, for, I forget, <laughs> but, uh, but, I but let's let's just say that it's true. Yeah, let's if go. If it's not that. true, it should be. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, no. You know what's cool? As I was reading a little bit about Nick Owen, um, they're saying that they're you know it's likely that. You know, you can go and see these examples of, of his work, and, and it's kind of like, you know, a, a room in a room. You know, so a priest hunter comes and, and looks, and in theory doesn't see the secret door where the priest is actually hidden. But there's, you know, it's suspected that there are, are plenty more of these that no one's discovered because they've been, mm. um, they were so well, so well made. Um, yeah. The other thing I, I found interesting about him um, is I guess he, he helped him to mastermind an escape from the Tower of London. Um, is that true? 
Yeah, it seems so. I mean, I I, I can't. Uh, I haven't done extensive research on on the on the plot, but he's he's kind of. And this is part one of the things that's interesting about this time is that the line between what's fiction, what's anti-Catholic and anti-Jesuit propaganda, and what's true is a little bit tricky uh, to nail down. So of course, there's the gunpowder plot that he kind of gets caught up in um, in terms of an allegation of involvement. Um, he's exonerated from that, but but he's they are involved in clandestine things, not necessarily violence. But say more um, about what the gunpowder plot was. So the gunpowder plot is a is it was an attack made on um, Parliament on British Parliament. Um, I'm gonna I have fuzzy dates on this, but uh, so definitely in the same chronology, late 16th century, uh, maybe early 17th. You might want to check that in the show notes. Um, but um, <laughs> the uh, he, there is an attack made on Parliament, and it's quickly laid at the feet of Catholic extremists, Catholic kind of insurgents. Um, and for political reasons, it's attributed to the Jesuits, so the, especially the Jesuit superior. And so Owen, uh, who's around at this time, is part of um, that group of, of Jesuits that's kind of uh, viewed with suspicion for the gunpowder plot. Um, it's not he, he that's not the ultimate cause of his demise, um, but he is but he's kind of suspected early on. Um, yeah, I uh, I know he I think he was he was he was captured twice, right? He was tortured. He was let go once. Um, I think I, I think I read he was so short that they, they, they when they captured him the first time, they torched him. He didn't give any information, and, and they they assumed he was kind of an insignificant friend of of priests as opposed to this kind of um, central key player. Can you talk a little bit though, um, kind of back to the larger thread? Why were the Jes were the Jesuits? targeted uh, specifically during this time as far as Catholics go, or, or was it um, just kind of all Catholics everywhere had had a bad, bad run of it? It was a pretty bad run of it in general. Um, but but part of the strategy was that, that you know, was um, there was the oath of, oath of allegiance, oath of loyalty to the to the to the king or queen as as the head of the church. Uh, and Catholics that refused to make that oath were called recusants, that they recused themselves from the oath. And they would pay fines. Most of the Catholics who were um, publicly recusant at this time would be wealthy. Many of the priest holes are in the homes of very wealthy people. Um, they also had the money to support a priest. So, but very quickly, what they do is they expel priests from the country. So, yes, we're willing to let you be an unofficial Catholic, but um, that the actual, the way that they were going to go about killing Catholicism, so to speak, was to ban banish priests. And so the society very quickly gets involved and, and other, other orders and other like diocesan priests, but um, get involved in training missionaries to then go back to um, England to, to minister subversively. Uh, and so, for example, in, um, in the Netherlands, there are large communities in today's Netherlands that are large communities of Catholic recusants, um, and including some colleges that were formed uh, there by, in kind of nor today's northern France on the border between France and the Netherlands. Um, and then what they would do is that, that they would be transported back into, um, into England. So for example, one of the most famous colleges um, uh, is is in um, Douai in, in uh, northern northern France, technically these days, and um, it was funded by the Spanish crowns. Remember, Spain defender of Catholicism, and um, they were trying to uh, undo the Protestant monarchy in uh, in England, and so they would have trained these priests and sent them back uh, to do their um, clandestine ministry. It's um, 
it's probably hard for us to fully appreciate. Um, I won't include you. I'll say me. Um, but but especially in modern times, because um, you know, for as, as as loaded and as challenging as kind of um, you know religious identity can be today, vis a vis politics, you know, there was there was no no difference. There was no separation between church and state, very literally, right? And so a lot of a lot of this kind of moving around does have that very um, you know, power grab feel to it, uh, and not necessarily, um, you know, a gospel gospel call feel to it. Uh, would you agree, or, or is there something more we should think about as we're thinking about? You know, we've talked about kind of the Catholic monarchs vis-a-vis the Pope, vis-a-vis you know, you know, with France, and now we have the English monarchs, you know, Protestant versus Catholic. Um, is there some some different ways that we could think about this this time, or or is that kind of kind of it? I think especially when we're thinking about England. Um, it's it's worth remembering that um, so even if we step away from the politics of this, which is hard to do, as you're saying, but um, the Reformation was not only driven in England by monarchs. There was there was a, a strong element of that, but uh, and this is a source of some debate among historians: is was it the case that you know the the Reformation comes along from the from the top down and just kind of opens people who were oppressed by their Catholic faith for forever, or was it the fact that Catholic faith was actually really robust on the ground? And I think it's somewhere in between the two, right? So that this was a time in which people to say under a Catholic monarch that you were a Protestant could get you killed, and to say under a Protestant monarch that you were a Catholic could get could get you killed. Um, and so that people's faith convictions, independent of the politics, were um, very strong. That's not to say that everyone was that way, but the people were really willing to, that their sense of identity, not just religious identity, but who they were, and even their sense of national identity was tied up also in their religious beliefs, uh, that they were willing in many cases to be killed and tortured for, including Nicholas Ellen. So let's kind of keeping that in mind, um, the importance of religious identity and kind of what, what people are, are willing to do for it. Um, we'll jump to a very different part of the world, but but a very um, kind of similar time frame um, and talk about uh, more Jesuit martyrs, uh, but not just Jesuits uh, this time, but but uh, but a few others as well. Um, uh, and, and look at Japan. So can you uh, mm-hmm. talk a little bit about uh, the Jesuit martyrs of, of Nagasaki? Uh, what's going on there uh, at this at this point in history? And when when are we yeah. in history? So we're a little bit, we're, we're about the same time, really. So the martyrs of Nagasaki are in 1597, so very late 16th century, right on the cusp of the 17th. And as you're suggesting, there is, um, th- there's a global move in Catholicism that's happening at this time. So if, you know, England, Spain, Portugal, France, Germany, like these were kind of the, the old uh, Catholic countries. Remember that at the end of the um uh, 15th century, uh, the world gets very big very quickly. So uh, the whole new world, and I am scare quoting around that um, phenomenon that come that come into being. So Nagasaki, um, it's a complicated political thing that I'll try to make pretty pretty quick. Is that the Jesuits wind up going to Asia principally with the Portuguese, who um, were the first kind of Far East explorers. Uh, we know the story of Francis Xavier, and uh, the the mission to to Japan is entrusted in the early years to the to the Jesuits, um, for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of which is that Spain and Portugal are ruled by the same crown. Later in in time, uh, late in the 16th century and into the 17th, uh, the Franciscans begin to arrive, uh, and there are competing strategies of evangelization or mission work that happen. Um, 
The Jesuits are not particularly happy to have competition on the ground. Uh, as you may know, they, they spend a lot of time learning the language and really trying to enculturate, we would say, uh, within Japan to, to attract Christians rather than to forcibly convert them, at least uh, after a little bit of time, which was not the approach of the Franciscans. So what you get very quickly is kind of a competition on the ground between the Jesuit missionaries and the Franciscans. Um, and the martyrs of Nagasaki are a composite of both three Jesuits, a number of members of the Franciscan order, and then Franciscan tertiaries, they're called, or people who were lay, lay collaborators or lay members of the Franciscan movement. So um, to cut a long story pretty short, uh, they run afoul of the, of the, uh, of the government, uh, mostly because it seems the Franciscans were a little more aggressive in their preaching tactics. So they did not learn the language. They'd walk around speaking in Latin, uh, kind of antagonizing people and yelling at them or shouting at them sermons, uh, which, as you imagine, was not particularly smiled upon. <laughs> and um, they wind up being crucified, 26 of them. Uh, on a hillside overlooking Nagasaki uh, on February 5th of 1597. Um, now, there's a lot we can say about this, and I'm sure we will, but that's kind of the the quick and dirty of, of who they are. So talk a little bit about who, who are the key, um, the key figures, the key Jesuits um, and key Franciscans that <laughs> Um, that might be worth um, digging more deeply into uh, in this in this you know the scene that you've set um, and, and maybe mm -hmm. I, if you I, I think it's really interesting that the differences in approaches I imagine they you know these individuals you know even more so exemplify that. Yeah, well, so it's the most important thing to keep in mind here is that up until this point, and this is why I think that they're really significant, many of the martyrs of the Christian church were principally Europeans. So the three Jesuits who are killed are, ja are Japanese. So they are uh, James Kisai, uh, John Sondagoto, and then Paul Miki. Um, so you have native-born Christians who become Jesuits and who are killed for, for their work for the gospel. It's part of the reason why these martyrs become so famous is because that they at once prove the need for missionary work and the success of the missionary enterprise uh, globally. Um, another person who's worth us just knowing that, that he exists, because some of the Franciscans who are killed are Spaniards, who are Spanish missionaries, but one of them is actually from Mexico, uh, Felipe de Jesus, who will be the first kind of native-born American, if I'm not mistaken, to be beatified. I think Rose of Lima beats him to the, beats him to canonization, but um, he's, he's one of the first. And so the, these martyrs really are the first truly global martyrs of, of Catholicism in this period. So you have native Japanese Jesuits, native Japanese lay people, and then also people from uh, elsewhere in the Spanish and Portuguese empires. So uh, they really are um, kind of the face of global Catholicism at this time. How did the Society of Jesus respond um, in the wake of this uh, martyrdom? Yeah, so, I mean, this is an interesting question. I think the Franciscans were really kind of, they had the sense that their mission was failing in Japan and that martyrdom would help them, <laughs> would help, you know, it's that kind of Catholic logic that uh, martyrdom is the seed of, of the church, of, the, of Christianity. Uh, and they were kind of courting martyrdom. The Jesuits were a little less willing to, to, to die. But, but once they, they didn't, they were, they doubted the success of that strategy, I should say, not willing to die. Um, 
But what happens is as soon as they're dead, then there's a race to own them. And so the Jesuits um, on their global network start diffusing stories of the martyrs, usually just talking about their three martyrs of Nagasaki and omitting conveniently the rest of the 23 people. Um, and then you also have the Franciscans who do the same. And it's essentially a race to to shine the brightest light on their particular order, uh, typically by getting the message back to Rome and to Spain as fast as you could. Um, so there's really kind of a, 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 a competition, again, even in death, to claim kind of the glory of, of the mission in Japan. Um, so it's an interesting story. Is there a discussion too over because obviously you, you described two very different approaches to 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 mission work, uh, as well as two different um, ways of thinking about uh, the role of martyrdom? Um, do, do, does the impact the legacy of these of these martyrs, the whole group of them? Um, is there some kind of uh, I don't say warring, but but a clash of 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 um, kind of next steps, ways of proceeding um, for the global church? As, again, as you said, as the, as the church looks at this you know expansive world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think in the sh in the narrower frame, what it really does is it 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 loosens the society's grip on the Asian missions in general. Um, so that if if the society if Jesuits had been entrusted with Japan and and elsewhere in Asia, um, the sense that the Franciscans now had martyrs there too um, reduced a kind of Jesuit monopoly. But um, in terms of like overall strategy, I I wouldn't say that this has a particular impact on. Um, people like rethinking or, or kind of wondering whether what we've been doing is, is the best way to go about it. Um, rather kind of the opposite. I mean, it, it becomes, especially for Jesuits, you know, that we have, we have evidence of uh, in Jesuit churches, both in Rome and even in the new world, the new world again, um, in, in kind of Spanish territories in the Americas, these are some of the first Jesuits who are beatified. And they're beatified pretty quickly. And their images become known, especially to Jesuits in formation, as models of who they might become. Um, so the, the martyrs in this period, whether they're in England or whether they're in uh, Asia or in the Americas, become a way, become a very important recruiting mechanism, not as a way of rethinking the missionary enterprise, but in some ways of doubling down on it. What happens to the um, the role of the Jesuits in in Asia um, after this um, this moment? Because I know, obviously, as you said, there was, you know, you have Matteo Ricci in China, um, and you have, uh, you know, obviously Jesuits in Japan. Um, but I know it unravels. Is this kind of the beginning of the unraveling, or um, or, or what? What give us a little uh, preview of what comes next? <laughs> Yeah, it's an early episode of unraveling. I mean, it's a it's a vast geography and a complicated landscape. So, without wanting to speak in too much uh, generalities here, but the, you know, in Japan, it takes it takes time. Uh, there's kind of waves of Christian persecution, and um, so this was a this was in some sense a first wave that resulted in martyrdom, um, and then it will kind of ebb and flow for for several more decades before Christianity is ultimately expelled. Um, Christianity survives in the lives of the faithful, as we know, if you've seen some of the later work of, of fictional work, but based in some truth about silent, the, the, the novel Silence and the film by Martin Scorsese. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Christian and, and Jesuit presence in China is, is related to this in terms of what the, what the strategy was. Um, there is a long controversy. So the competition that happens between Jesuits and Franciscans is intimately related to what's known as the Chinese rights controversy, which drags on for literally hundreds of years about what is the proper way to 
um, evangelize in places where you're not dealing with a, a kind of Western European thought structure around what God is and who Jesus might be. So um, this this is a real flashpoint, um, this, this story, and that it opens us into bigger dynamics that are in play in that time period and even for, for quite a while after. And again, I don't want to get too far down the uh, his- historical uh, rabbit hole here, but um, this is this plays a role eventually in the suppression of the society, right? This kind of different approach of of how uh, you know mission work should be should be done, right? Yeah, there's a yeah that's a eventually the Chinese rights controversy will build toward uh, some of the dynamics that overlap um, and and result in the general suppression of the society and the. Uh, in the later years. So for folks that are interested in that, Google suppression of the society, or we have a historian here, is there, um, is there a key book, uh, Tim, that you would recommend on, on Jesuit saints in general? What, what would be a good um, kind of primer for folks that are, are interested in going deeper in this topic? If you're interested in learning more about Jesuit saints, kind of the standard text is by uh, a Jesuit, former Jesuit of the Maryland province, now deceased, called Joe Talenda, who he wrote, he kind of compiled um, a list of the of Jesuit saints and martyrs, uh, and that's the title of the book. Um, in terms of like a broader image of, um, you know, uh, there's a number of different ways you can take that if you're interested mostly in saints uh, and and how some Jesuit saints interact in the larger reality. Uh, you can always pick up Jim Martin's My Life with the Saints, which was his first big book um, and has some Jesuit saints in there, but not only. And I think it's important to know that these Jesuit saints participate in a much bigger cloud of witnesses, as the scripture tells us. So last question, Tim, who um, who is your personal favorite? And I will limit it to this to Jesuit saints, since that is our topic for today. I, I get teased about this a lot by my friends, but uh, my favorite Jesuit saint is Francis Borgia. Um, I, I think a lot about him, um, not so much for his sanctity, but because of his role in a, in a time and a geography that I think a lot about. And I think, uh, he kind of embodies a lot of the, the currents that are, uh, happening in the church and in the Jesuits at that time. Cool. Well, Tim, thank you for your time and for your reflections. And, uh, maybe we'll have you back on for the, for the sequel the suppression of the society. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks very much. I'm finally happy to be uh, a friend of the pod on recording and rather than just listening. So I know. Long time listener, first time guest. <laughs> first time. That's right. There it is. <laughs> All right, Tim. Thank you so much. Thanks. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C., The show is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Mike Jordan Lasky, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at at @jesuitnews, on Instagram at wearethejesuits, and at Facebook, facebook.com slash jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>